Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. Thanks for being here. And I'm so looking forward to next week. I would just want to say thank you to all of our V-Life volunteers or team members that came out uh, at the Tanner's house yesterday to help us prepare for the egg hunt. We stuffed bags. We spray-painted boxes. I think my hair still glows in the dark from all the excess spray-off and stuff like that. But it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, uh, Jason will talk a little bit about this later, but right after the service today, we're going to have a short meeting for all those that want to be involved with helping us facilitate the egg hunt next week. We need some people to help do crowd control and work the tables, and, uh, and so I can tell you kind of what's going to happen and what's going to work, how that's going to go down. I'm expecting a ginormous crowd. I know that's not a word, but we're going to use that because... Uh, I get online, the response has been incredible. We have over 600 people saying they're interested in coming. The, the ad that we've sent out has reached over 16,000. It's shared. I get notifications on Facebook like hourly about people interested. So I don't know what God's going to do, but I know that it's going to be a lot bigger than what we're used to. And so you might want to plan on getting here a little earlier. You know, you know how the parking situation is whenever the wrestling team is here. You might want to plan some time to get here for parking. And uh, to help us, uh, and then also our volunteers, we are ordering T-shirts for the event. Uh, so if you are, are planning on volunteering, please stop by the VIP table on your way out. Let them know your T-shirt size and color preference. We're going to choose a couple different colors. It says Blacklight Egg Hunt on there to help promote the event. And then we'll, of course, be able to use them for next year as well. So if you're planning on helping, we need your T-shirt size. Um, we are going to continue in our series, Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Now is also a great time to check in on Facebook. If you haven't uh, seen our recent ad on our Vertical Life Church page, we're going to be showing that a little bit later. Our V-Life Ninja was up to you know some mischief this past week in preparation for our egg hunt. So we're going to show you what's happening with that. And then you want to go on later and make sure you share that as well. Kind of help promote uh, what God is doing here and our event next week. But uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be talking about something that affects each and every one of us every day, it seems like. But to set the foundation for what we're going to be speaking about today, let me take a quick poll around the room. All right, this is where you get to participate in church. Yay! Okay, so by a show of hands, how many of you have had a conflict with someone this week? Big or small, you've had a conflict. Right, just about everyone in the house, right? It's all across the room. So whether it was with your spouse or with your friend or your coworker or your child or your boss, each and every one of us, some point during the day or week, is going to have conflict. Interpersonal conflict is a natural part of the human experience. Uh, one of the uh, jobs I had while I was... Uh, uh, facilitating a soft skills class at Mott Community College. I was uh, teaching about personality and how personalities conflict just by um, natural habit. Uh, you just being you, how God created you, could automatically create conflict with someone else when they're just being them because your personalities clash. The way you interpret the world and the way they interpret the world are completely different. So what they could mean, uh, you know, they could do something that they didn't mean anything by, you could totally interpret in a negative way. And so conflict just happens all of the time. It happens for various reasons, such as opposing opinions and arguments, personality clashes, misconceptions of situations, and perception issues. Someone offends or wrongs you in some way, you have a conflict. Conflict arises. And one of the biggest 
and most destructive issues we face in our relationships and even in our church is unresolved conflict. And so just about every one of you raised your hand about having a conflict this week. So I have a follow-up question. By show of hands, how many of you actively resolve the conflict? Not as many. Not as many. So we all experience conflict, but not too many times do we actively resolve. Make sure that everything is resolved. And in your conflict this week, think about it. Did the conflict escalate to where you're still dealing with it now? Or did you work it out so that now you're in that process of reconciliation? See, most of us, I think, we endure conflict, but we don't like conflict. So once it happens, we try to avoid the situation. We make the excuse that just because we're not talking about it anymore, maybe we don't feel mad about the situation anymore, that somehow we must be over it or that we don't need to really work through anything. But you know instinctively and deep in your heart by the way you feel when you come across that person you've had conflict with, you know that that unresolved conflict isn't over. You know you're not over it. It becomes the elephant in the room. When you have conflict with somebody and you walk in the same space as them, you know you can feel that tension. You can cut the air with a knife, it seems like. That tension is there because of unresolved conflict. It's that strange and awkward feeling you get when you go to be close to your loved one again or your spouse again after a disagreement and it just doesn't feel right or the same. The same as when you enter the room with a friend or a coworker after a falling out. Unresolved conflict is like an open wound. It's like an open wound in that if it's left untreated, it will fester until it becomes like cancer that will kill your relationships. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and here's what he tells them. He says, don't sin by letting anger control you, which means that if you are a person that are led by your angry emotions, if you let anger control your situation or, or your decisions, that is in itself sin. By letting anger control you, by having uh, dominance in your life. And he says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. When we have these conflicts, if we let anger and these bitter emotions dictate what we do versus submitting ourselves to God, what we're doing is we're opening a door for Satan to come in. Paul's telling us that unresolved issues are the devil's playground. It's ripe for him to come in and begin to mess things up. He gets positioned to work in your life and work out his destructive means. And he does this through creating a spirit of bitterness in your life. Bitterness that negatively affects many areas of your life. Bitterness is a horrible thing because most of us don't even recognize that we're bitter when we're bitter. But bitterness affects a lot of things. It affects your ability to trust people. It affects your ability to believe the best about people before you assume the worst. It affects your ability to connect with someone on a deeper level. It affects your ability to be an encourager. It affects your ability to let others encourage you. It affects how strong your faith is. It affects how well you can love. It affects how much joy you experience. And it even affects your willingness to put yourself out there again and try new things. Bitterness is a relationship and a life killer. And Jesus understands how we operate. He became a human being so he could experience life the way we experience it. He knows how we work and operate. And he also knows the way for us to experience the best life we can in this broken world. 
John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said he had come to give us life and life more abundantly. He has come for a purpose so that we can have the best experience here on our way to have the most incredible experience in eternity. This is why he's come into our world, and he knows the path what we need to take to experience that abundant life and by following in his footsteps. Our example in Jesus Christ is not to hide the elephant in the room. It's to be an emergency responder. It's to be like an emergency responder. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 12, Jesus gives this parable, tells this little story, and here's what he says. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the 99 that didn't wander away. And in the same way, in the same way, it is not merely the heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. So Jesus is telling us a story. He's describing the Father's heart towards those who are far from him. From the greatest heroes, the greatest people that we would measure success by in this world, right down to the smallest insignificant child. Right here, Jesus is saying, everyone matters to God. Everyone matters. And God's desire is for everyone to go to heaven, that no one should perish. He doesn't want anyone to have to pay for their sins in hell. He wants everyone to accept the gospel, to trust in Jesus, and have new life. And so Jesus' focus here is on searching for those he can find to be reconciled back to himself. And in this parable, the shepherd, he goes and finds the lost sheep, where he finds out that the sheep is lost. And so in desperation, in emergency responder fashion, he drops everything and mounts a rescue plan or a search party to find this lost sheep. He drops everything. He leaves the others behind who didn't stray away, leaves them in safety, and with a fearful intensity about the possibility of losing this sheep to a predator, or to some dangerous situation, he sets off to bring it back into the fold. The shepherd could have ignored the sheep. He could have ignored that the sheep wandered off. He could have just prayed for the sheep and hopefully God would lead the sheep back one day. He could have been glad the sheep was gone because after all, it was probably the one that was causing him the most trouble. So he could have been glad that, man, now I'm burden free. I don't have to worry about that darn sheep anymore. No, but to the shepherd and to God, it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. God is desperately seeking you out to reconcile you back to himself. Because everyone matters. He recognizes God, the creator of the universe, recognizes that having you in his life is far greater than not having you in his life. And God demonstrated his passionate desire to reconcile us back to himself by taking on the human form in Jesus Christ and providing a way for us to be saved. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 6, he declares this. He says, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. We are all in the same boat. We are all that wandering sheep. And Jesus' ministry here on earth was to rescue us from the devil and reconcile us back to God through placing our faith and trust in him. And now, for all those who believe that message, who believe the gospel, who claim the name of Christ, who declare him as Lord and Savior, who call themselves Christian, 
every one of us have inherited the very same ministry. Paul to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says this. He says, and this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. So as Jesus had this ministry of reconciliation, once he left this earth and went back to the Father, he passed that ministry down to us. So our ministry as followers of Jesus Christ isn't about running people away. It's not about ignoring those who are far from him or keeping the gospel to ourselves. It's a rescue mission. We are on mission to rescue those who have wandered away. We are have this ministry of reconciliation given to us with this intense desperation to rescue a lost and dying world. And this is the context for our, our passage here in Matthew chapter 18. You see, it's not about the conflict per se. It's not about the conflict you experience per se. It's about what you do with the conflict, how you respond to the conflict. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus is setting us, setting us up here. In verse 15, he begins to talk about conflict. He says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Now, the first thing I see here as Jesus is talking about interpersonal conflict and personal relationships is that, first off, our issues are not to be shared with others until we've attempted to work out the situation one-on-one -on -one ourselves. That we're not to go out and, and to tell our story before we try to reconcile. It doesn't mean that we seek out wisdom and gossip to 15 other people before we've tried to work things out with the person we have struggled with. And that's what we do all of the time. We get mad. We let anger control us, and then we sin through gossip and other means, and we make excuses for that behavior. And many people have been damaged. Many ministries and reputations have been destroyed because before conflict was taken privately and individually to the person involved, the offended party shared their grievances to the world and casted a dark cloud of shame on the other person behind their back. Many times conflicts arise due to simple misunderstandings, just like personality conflict. And how horrible is it that a person's reputation, their ministry, their life could be destroyed over information that was shared that was simply untrue? This happens all the time. And this should not be true in the church of Jesus Christ. We should not be a people of gossip. We should be a people of reconciliation. And the second thing I see here, which we most often miss in this verse, is that we, we tend to focus on the last part of this, this passage where we focus on the part that says, treat the person that doesn't listen to you like a pagan or a tax collector. But, but in this passage, think about who's writing the gospel. This is Matthew, right? We call this gospel confessions of a sinner because Matthew's profession was what? He was a tax collector. So here Jesus, as he's talking about those that don't, that don't work towards reconciliation, that stay in an unrepentant state of mind, that you are to treat those as a pagan or a tax collector, think about what was going through Matthew's mind the moment Jesus uttered these words. Think about it. I can just see this exchange happening and him look over and lock eyes with Matthew. 
Think about the sting in Matthew's heart as he recounted all the time people just did their business with him and then left him alone, like in social exile. They shunned him because of what he was doing, because of his occupation, because of his character, the ridicule he faced because of the life that he chose. I can see Matthew replaying this in his mind and having his heart sink because he knows exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this day and age. And here Jesus seems to be instructing the church to treat a person who after the judgment by the church leaders remains unrepentant to treat them in this way, to exile them, to kick them out. But see, that is not the intent of this passage. To reject somebody is not the intention of what Jesus is saying here. The intention is not to reject, but to let God deal with them in hopes to bringing them to repentance. Just as Jesus desired to change the life of Matthew, who was already a tax collector, so Jesus desires to change the lives of all those who remain unrepentant. In other words, all those who have wandered away. All those who are lost. Those whose hearts are far from him, like the sheep who has lost. Jesus desires to restore them. And so he has a plan to do that. And Matthew, as Jesus is talking here, he knew exactly what Jesus was saying, that before a person can be reconciled, they have to recognize their need to be reconciled. They have to recognize their need to, to be restored. And that can't happen as long as we enable someone to walk in a rebellious spirit. But so often, because as human beings, we're born with these sinful hearts, we have these prideful and sinful hearts, we focus on that negative part. And I know some churches even like go on witch hunts trying to find out who they can kick out next because we focus on the negative. But that is not the focus of this passage. That is the last resort. That is the last resort. The focus of this verse is in verse 15 where Jesus says, if the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. That's the focus that when we have conflict resolution, the, the goal is not to remove somebody from your life. It's to win them back because we are in the reconcile, reconciliation business. We are in the search and rescue business. We are in the following Jesus business. We are not in the condemnation business. Happens many times is that instead of working towards reconciliation, we just skip that part and jump towards condemnation. Because instead of launching a search and rescue mission to reconcile what was broken, we ignore, we condemn, we awkwardly avoid or do what we have to do just to deal with the person as necessary, but then we leave them high and dry. We walk in our anger and in our bitterness which is just an open invitation for Satan to come in and mess with our lives and our relationships and even our church. So when someone wrongs us, why don't we, like the shepherd, leave the 99 and go after the one? Why don't we launch and make the first move? Well, I think for a few reasons. Number one, a lack of confidence. Many of us are practically just too afraid to deal with conflict. We don't like it. We try to avoid it. We feel like, well, if I, if I go approach them and try to work this out, I might get embarrassed. And so for fear of embarrassment, for lack of confidence, you just go on your life and say nothing more about it. Two, I think there's a lack of trust. We don't believe God knows what he's doing. We look at this verse and say, yeah, Jesus, I know you said go to them first, but I think I have a better idea. I'm going to try my way because I don't really trust you to work all things out for my good. I think there's self-centeredness. We care more about how we feel in the situation than how the outcome of the situation honors the Lord. We care more about how we feel and how we've been wronged and, and the negativity we have to live with versus how we can honor and glorify God with our lives. 
Fourth thing I think is pride. Since I was the victim, why should I have to make the first move to work towards reconciliation? I, don't, I shouldn't have to do that. They're the ones that did the wrong. And number five, plain old revenge and retribution. We wish harm on them for what they did, not blessing. And the church worldwide has developed for themselves a reputation for those that are outside the faith, those who don't even go to church. We have developed this reputation of being more for what we're against than what we are for. More judgmental, condemning people than people of reconciliation. We've made a career out of condemning the lost by picketing and, and other sorts of things that demonstrate our anger towards those who don't live and believe like we do. We have been more about condemning the lost than rescuing them. So why would we do anything else when we've made a career out of condemning one another rather than reconciling? Why would they view us any other way? Collectively, we as individuals have made a habit out of ignoring, avoiding, and condemning those who have offended us those who we've been in conflict with, rather than proactively working to reconcile them. And as we do it individually, it becomes corporately as the church. And the danger in that, the danger in not following God's will for our lives and his plan for personal reconciliation is that we don't realize the authority that, and power that the church has. Jesus made this profound statement. He says, the church will be built on the rock, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and it will be unstoppable. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is a powerful entity. And in Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, he expounds on the power that exists in the church. He says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on the earth will be permitted in heaven. I also tell you this. If two of you agree on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. We quote this scripture all the time to talk about how we believe God is present with us in the now. That Jesus Christ literally is in this place because we gather in his name. But what Jesus is talking about here is the power that the church has when it's in unity with the Father. Think about the implication of what Jesus is saying. What if, because we're known more for what we're against than what we're for, we're known more for condemning than reconciling, what if most of the judgment we see in the world, the famine, the pestilence, the natural disasters, the wars, what if most of the pain that we experience and we see in the world is due to the church standing against those who are far from God instead of working to restore and reconcile those far from God? Think about it. If God will stand against what we stand against, if God will bless what we bless, what might the implication be? If we continue to call down judgment, the judgment of God on those who offend us, the judgment of God of those who work out evil in this world rather than call for their reconciliation. What would our lives be like if God did the same thing to us? What if he ignored us? What if he avoided us? What if he condemned us instead of rescued us? What would your life be like? What if as he's dangling on the cross with his last breath, what if he cried out, Father, condemn them, instead of, Father, forgive them? What would your relationships be like if instead of talking about people behind their back, you followed the Lord's example and in desperation sought out to reconcile with them, to mend what was broken? What would your life be like 
that if before the sun goes down, you worked out all things in the love of Christ. What would our world be like if the church stopped being known for what it was against and started being known for what it was for? Because people were experiencing the amazing love of God and seeing reconciliation to their creator all over the world. I think our lives and our world would be so very different if we pursued instead of avoided, if we engaged instead of ignored, if we blessed instead of condemned. Because we have a ministry of reconciliation, not just for those who are lost to be restored to God, but for our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ to be restored to one another, to be in unity with one another so we can stand united as the unstoppable assembly of God, the church of Jesus Christ, rather than a divided and divisive religious organization where everyone is smiling but silently hating each other, which sadly is so many churches all around the world. We go to church because we feel that's what Christians are supposed to do, but we don't like anybody that's there because we can't get along with them because we're not working out our personal differences. Reconciliation requires the F word, forgiveness. Reconciliation requires forgiveness. After Jesus makes this declaration about the powerful nature of the church, he tells a story. It's called the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Peter comes to him after he makes this declaration, and he says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors who was brought in who owed him millions of dollars, he couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And this is our key verse today, verse 35. Jesus says, That's what my heavenly father will do to you. If you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Jesus, who is the king in this story? He's the king of all creation who at the moment of his death cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't ask us to come to him first before he would intervene. We didn't have to be worthy to be loved. We didn't have to demonstrate a justifiable reason to be given another chance. No, God loved us with an unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And we love him because he first loved us. For he forgave us before we even asked to be forgiven. This is God's incredible and amazing love towards us. 
And here in this story, this, this king, he forgives his servant, but then the servant turns around and calls for judgment on those that owed him. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're unwilling to pay forward what I have given to you, then I will take from you what I have given. You're not worthy of it. Jesus said, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus is declaring what his will for our lives is. He says, you must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. For you to live a Christian life that honors God, that's worthy of his calling, you are to love him with all you are and let that love spill out to other people. Love others the way we love ourselves. And, and that's that loving others the way we love ourselves, we kind of you know, try to guess at what that means and how we can live that out. And Jesus here is he's actually quoting for two, from two different passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. And loving others the way you love yourselves comes from Leviticus 19.18. And here's what the Old Testament declares. He says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what is Jesus talking about? Is he saying you are to love others the way you love yourself? It's simple. In other words, put yourself in someone else's shoes. If it was you who made the offense, would you want someone to gossip about you or pursue reconciliation with you? If you were the one who messed up, would you want someone to hold a grudge against you or offer forgiveness to you? If you were the one who deserved to be condemned, would you want condemnation or would you want grace? Martin Luther King, he said one time, A man must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. Loving your neighbor as yourself means to give to others in kind what God has given to you. Jesus says here in Matthew 18 that if you're not willing to extend the same kind of love to others the way I'm extending it to you, if you are too proud, if you are too important, if you are too deserving, if you're too justified to, be, to humble yourself to make the first move in the reconciliation effort, if you are too important to trust me or too wise to trust me to work out each situation you come across for your good, even when you don't see anything good coming from what you're going through, then you don't need what I have to give. And what I have to give is my rights. The one that was equal with God, humbled himself, gave up his divine rights and took on the form of a servant. He gave up his rights. He gave up his happiness. He gave up his glory. He gave up his body. He gave up his blood. He gave up his life so that you and I could be reconciled back to God and receive the forgiveness of sins. Core concept of our message today is that forgiveness cannot be forced. It has to be freely given by the offended party. But where there is forgiveness, there can be reconciliation. And God has intervened as our rescuer, offering forgiveness and reconciliation. And in kind, we need to have the faith and the love to rescue others, offering forgiveness for reconciliation. Reconciliation in our relationships with one another in the church and in our families and in those who are lost and without the hope of Jesus Christ. The church needs to stop taking his love for granted and start following in the footsteps 
of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, If you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. You see, we have a ministry of reconciliation. And if we let bitterness and anger and grudges fill our lives, it will not be God on the ruling our hearts. It will be our enemy. And Jesus wants authentic followers. He wants people that have faith, that don't pretend they have faith. And here he's saying, if you have problems with people, if you've not been working that ministry of reconciliation, then save your sacrifices, save your worship, and leave it at the altar until you get that worked out in your life. See, Jesus wants to relieve you of the weight of heavy burdens. He wants to heal your scars. He wants to mend your relationships. He wants to bless your life. He wants to lead you to an overflowing life, a life of joy, of peace, and of blessing. But as long as you hold the sins of others against them, God is going to hold yours against you, and you will continue to buckle under the weight of your own bitterness. Today, it's a special day in the life of the church. We're going to celebrate the death of our Lord today on Palm Sunday. Today is the day he saddled up the colt and he rode victoriously into Jerusalem. The fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy. The coming day the Messiah would be revealed. The day that we could look to that now the Messiah has come, we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. So as an act of worship, we're going to honor the Lord by observing the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul the Apostle, as he's speaking to the church of Corinth, he advises the church that before you come to the Lord's table, you need to examine your hearts. Because some of them, their hearts weren't right with God, and they weren't right with their fellow brothers and sisters. They had a lot of issues. They were being selfish, self-centered. And Paul tells the church of Corinth that because you've come to the Lord's table with hearts that are not right before the Lord, many of you are drinking judgment on yourselves and not blessing. So before you come to his table, you need to examine your own heart. You need to examine yourself. Seek the Lord. And today, I invite you that before you approach the table of the Lord, that you seek God and you ask him to reveal in you any place in your heart or in your life that you're harboring bitterness, anybody that you've not forgiven, any place you're holding grudges, any place you've demonstrated a lack of love for others as opposed to a self-sacrificing love, and confess those things before the Lord. And just as Jesus said, if there's someone here in this room that you have a problem with, before you come and worship the Lord by coming to his table, take that person aside. And begin working towards reconciliation. If that person is not here today, then just remain in your seat. Don't come down to the table. Don't drink judgment on yourself. Stay where you are. And this week, pursue reconciliation. So that the next time at the table, you can come with a clean heart and a clean mind. The time for gossip, the time for grudges, the time for bitterness among God's people is over. It's time for us to give our hearts to Jesus, to love him above all and let that love be lived out in how we love others. To be lived out in forgiveness and reconciliation. Because that is our ministry as the people of God. And until he returns, until that day, we will remind ourselves and how he forgave us, how he showed his love towards us, how he gave himself to reconcile us through his death 
and resurrection as we gather at his table. Let's bow our heads for prayer in this place. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And God, we know that your intentions towards us are only good. And I'm thankful, God, to know that many of the situations that we face, that I face, thinking about reconciling, thinking about following you, so very hard and so very difficult. It's so hard to humble yourself when you feel like that you've been wronged. It's so hard to do the right thing when you're so angry because of situations that have happened in your life, God. But God, we know your intentions towards us are only good. Your plans for us are good and not for disaster. God, that you are leading us with every command, with every guide, with every principle. You're leading us to that abundant life. God, you're wanting to free us from the weight of our sin, to free us from the curses of the enemy that come in when we don't honor you with our lives, when we allow sin to come in. God, you're wanting to free us from all that. Help us to trust your heart today. Lord, as we look back to the cross, as we look back to your sacrifice. I pray, God, that as we eat at your table today, remembering your body and your blood, I pray, Jesus, that before we offer you worship that's in vain, God, that we would honor you with our lives and we would take those steps to have real faith, that we would work towards reconciliation in our families, in our friendships, in our places of work, God, and as we reconcile with one another who love you, who are our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, God, that as we reconcile with one another, we would be on mission to help those who are far from you, the sheep that have strayed away. God, that we would be seeking them out so that we can help them reconcile to you. Let the church rise up in this place and let us walk in grace and mercy for ourselves and for others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. The worship team's going to sing for just a moment. I invite you to stay in an attitude of prayer. Now, as we sing, you go before the Lord. And you ask him to seek your heart, to find out if there's anything that you've been keeping from him, anything that you've not been following him in your life, and confess those things to the Lord. If you want to take a moment and come down to the front to these first few chairs and pray, I invite you to do that. Or you can remain where you are in your seat. But let's just take this time to ready our hearts to come to this table.